We are uh, very fortunate to have uh, for this uh, conference uh, a terrific lineup, two panels. Uh, it's my uh, privilege to be able to introduce them. I do want to thank, before I forget, the, the Plowshares Fund for their support for this project uh, and, uh, and really congratulate and thank my colleague Justin Logan who was responsible for organizing it. Um, I think many of you here in the audience have uh, the bios, but for those of you who are watching online uh, for, for your benefit, What's that? Or on C-SPAN, right. I would just very quickly want to introduce the four panelists who will be speaking in the order that they will speak, and then I will get out of the way and uh, let them get started. Our first speaker today will be Michael Adler. He's a public policy scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Uh, as a reporter for uh, Johns France Press, he covered the uprising in Burma in 1988, the reconstruction of Kuwait after the first Gulf War, the war in Bosnia, and the moving of the German capital from Bonn to Berlin. He also covered the fall of Mobutu in Zaire. Additionally, Michael covered the Iranian nuclear crisis extensively while in Vienna uh, from 2002 to 2007. And he has reported from Tehran, Geneva, Berlin, New York, Tripoli, and other key cities on the Iranian issue. And he's currently writing a book on the diplomacy of the Iranian nuclear crisis. Our second speaker today is Barbara Slavin. She specializes on Iran as a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. As a public policy scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center for Scholars, uh, she authored Bitter Friends, Bosom Enemies, Iran, the U.S., and the Twisted Path to Confrontation. She was assistant managing editor for World uh, and National Security at the Washington Times in 2008 and 2009. Prior to that, she served for 12 years as senior diplomatic reporter for USA Today where she covered such key issues as the U.S.-led war on terrorism in Iraq, a policy toward rogue states, and the Arab-Israeli conflict. She accompanied three secretaries of state on their official travels and also reported solo from Iran, Libya, Israel, Egypt, North Korea, Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, and Syria, all the garden spots. Uh, our third speaker today is Ali Reza Nader. Uh, Ali is a senior international policy analyst at the RAND Corporation. His research is focused on Iran's political dynamics, elite decision-making, and Iranian foreign policy. Ali Reza's RAND publications include Coping with a Nuclearizing Iran, Israel and Iran, a Dangerous Rivalry, The Next Supreme Leader, Succession in the Islamic Republic of Iran, Saudi-Iranian Relations Since the Fall of Saddam, and many others. His commentaries have uh, appeared in a variety of media, including foreignpolicy.com, globalsecurity.org, International Herald Tribune, New York Times, and others, and he is a frequent guest on uh, television and radio. And the final speaker is my friend and colleague, Justin Logan. He's the director of uh, foreign policy studies here at Cato. He's an expert on US grand strategy, international relations theory, and American foreign policy. His current research focuses on the shifting balance of power in Asia and the formation of US grand strategy under unipolarity. He's authored numerous policy studies and articles, uh, including on US-China policy, US-Russia policy, uh, stabilization and reconstruction operations, and policy approaches towards a nuclear Iran. His articles have appeared in many uh, policy journals, including Foreign Policy and the National Interest, Orbis, Foreign Service Journal, and others. And he also has appeared on many television and radio networks. And with that, I will get out of the way, and I will introduce our first speaker, Michael Adler. Michael? Good morning, and thank you all for coming could, here. Michael, would you please speak from the podium? Oh, really? Thank you very much. Okay. Good morning. Um, when I first was asked to, the topic here today is can diplomacy work? And when I first was asked to do this, which was before 
the meeting of uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Obama in Washington, uh, and they had asked me to defend the concept that diplomacy could work, I thought this would be a very thankless task. <laughs> but it is amazing how much things have changed uh, over the past month, in the month of March. And the first development was that the rush to war, which seemed to be accelerating, ground to a halt, not a screeching halt, but a halt anyway, there's still some screeching about war, uh, when uh, Netanyahu met Obama. And what happened there is that uh, uh, the president um, both gave a, a kind of uh, statement the United States would eventually use force uh, if necessary, but also said there still was time for diplomacy. And the Israelis have reluctantly come aboard with that. And the day after the meeting of, just want to watch the time, the day after the meeting of the two leaders, uh, Catherine Ashton, who is the foreign policy representative for the European Union, sent a letter to uh, Saeed Jalili, who is the uh, Iranian negotiator on the nuclear issue, to say that she had accepted talks, which he had proposed earlier. Now, these talks are between uh, six nations, Britain, uh, Britain, China, France, Germany, uh, the United States, and Russia, called the P5 plus one. And uh, these are the five permanent security council members plus Germany. And they are, they've been negotiating with Iran since about 2006. In a crisis that began in 2002, when it was revealed that Iran had been hiding nu nuclear work for some two decades. The talks have not gone very well. There have been several uh, signposts along the way, but not to go through the whole history, but what brings us up to what's happening now is that in October 2009, there was a meeting at which the two sides agreed to a fuel swap where Iran would ship out most of the enriched uranium it had made in return for getting uh, fuel for a research reactor in Tehran, which makes medical isotopes. And the idea behind that, and the idea behind these talks in general, is that it would be a confidence-building measure. Iran would have shipped out most of it's enriched uranium, which makes them less able to break out to make a nuclear weapon. At the same time, they would have gotten a de facto recognition of continuing their enrichment, and that would have set the stage for serious talks. That deal fell apart. Then there were two meetings, in Geneva in December 2010, and then in Istanbul in January 2011, at which uh, the two sides tried to relaunch the process. This ended badly at a meeting in Istanbul uh, after the meeting in Geneva where the two sides had, had free reign to express their opinions. They discussed the nuclear issue. The Iranians had brought out a range of other concerns they have about world peace and about uh, the influence of uh, capitalism in the world. Um, the Iranians came to the second meeting and instead of negotiating, imposed two conditions which basically killed the process. And they were that, all the, that uh, all the sanctions against them would be lifted and that they would have an unequivocal right to enrich uranium. So this prevented any kind of deal in Istanbul. And after that, pretty much, you had a growing, uh, a growing march to war. What can I say? There were, there were um, concerns that Israel was about, to, was about to take action. Israel regards Iran, Iran's nuclear program as an existential threat. And that was what was stopped at the beginning of this month. And now we have the talks coming up again. So these talks are not taking place in a 
hopeless atmosphere where people are just going through the motions. These talks are actually a chance for a new start after um, there has been a, a step back from, from going to war. So I guess the question to ask is, what is the chance of success at these talks? I think that certainly the P5 plus one and certainly the United States are coming into these talks with low expectations. And the success of the talks will probably be if a second round is scheduled. This second round would occur fairly quickly because the idea would be to start moving ahead. But this is not the meeting at which there will be a dramatic breakthrough. This is not the meeting at which there'll be a fuel swap and a major confidence building measure. So the main thrust of what's happening is just to start talking again. But once again, it is in an atmosphere of saying, we've stopped the rush to war, let's really see if diplomacy can work. Um, in the past, there has been, uh, it's been very much a set piece at these talks. And Justin said to me that I should come up with a suggestion about how things can be better. My suggestion, which will never happen, is that when they sit down, and it's, the, the talks are scheduled for mid-April, we don't know where they're gonna be, they'll probably be somewhere in Switzerland, that when they sit down, I think that uh, the P5 plus one should say, you know something, let's not really get down to talks till the afternoon, let's have some tea, let's talk to each other, how's your family, what are things like in, in Tehran? Because the Iranians like this sort of approach. The Iranians want uh, an informal kind of talk where uh, everything's not laid on the table at once, and above all, where they're not presented with an ultimatum. And so I think the best thing that uh, the United States could say to uh, uh, the Iranians at this meeting is, how can we, tell us how we can help you. We're in this together, let's try to work it out. I don't think that's gonna happen. But I do think there is a real determination, at least on the American side, to make these talks work. So there will be an effort to um, do things in a way where the Iranians can feel that there's a forum for them to talk at. Um, another way to measure the success of the talks is if there are bilateral talks between the United States and Iran. Iran very much wants to talk directly to the United States. Iran feels that the United States is the, is the country which is going to deliver the goods. And in the beginning of this process, um, from 2003 to 2006, the Europeans were doing most of the negotiating and the United States was not even present at the table. And diplomats told me that they always felt that the Iranians were looking over their shoulders to see where were the Americans to guarantee the kind of uh, security guarantees, the kind of delivery of technology that would make a deal work. So I think a key sign of success of this meeting will be if there's a bilateral talk between the Iranian representative and between the uh, uh, American representative. At the talks in Istanbul and Geneva, the last two talks, there were no bilaterals between the Americans and the Iranians. If we get through this first round, and if we get to a second round, which would happen fairly quickly, that's where the real difficult things begin. Because you want to have a confidence-building measure. Now, if this can't be a fuel swap, what would be a smaller sort of confidence-building measure? It might be something called adhering to the additional protocol where Iran would agree to wider inspections of their nuclear facilities. It might be Iran agreeing to give early notification 
when it is constructing new facilities. Right now, Iran will only uh, disclose new facilities six months before they are going to introduce nuclear material. Those, believe it or not, are the small confidence building steps. The larger confidence building steps, excuse me, would be uh, Iran has enriches uranium right now to 3.5%, which is the level needed for a nuclear reactor. They also have started to enrich to 20% because they didn't get fuel for their research reactor. And 20% is very close to the above 90% you need to make a nuclear weapon because, you, um, because it's an exponential curve, so it's more than arith arithmetic. Now, the thing is that the first really significant confidence-building measure is if they um, stop enriching to 20% and ship out the 20% they've already made. This would really be a sign that we're in a process that means something. It is the sign the Israelis are looking for, where, where they, then it is a sign that diplomacy is serious. And I want to wrap up because I've been asked to. After this would come a larger fuel swap where they would ship out uh, much of their low enriched uranium. And at that point, I think the P5 plus one would begin to move towards freezing sanctions. If that happens, we would definitely be in a significant process. Of course, the chances of that are low, but the bottom line is that there is hope of a serious process which was unforeseen two, three months ago. And let's see how it develops. Thank you very much. Uh, all right. Good morning. Thank you, Cato, for inviting me. Um, I basically want to uh, endorse much of Michael's uh, analysis. I think that the the, uh, the race to war has been halted. Um, I think President Obama handled uh, Bibi Netanyahu brilliantly, uh, and he embraced him close, and at the same time, he basically read him the riot act and said, no, you are not going to start a war now, and you're not going to start a war before my re-election, at least my hope for re-election. Um, if you look at the remarks that were made at the APEC conference and when uh, the two of them met and afterwards, I think this is, this is rather clear. At the same time, we've seen some uh, interesting signals from Tehran. And perhaps Ali Reza, uh, Ali Reza will talk about that a little bit more as well. But uh, uh, not exactly, uh, well, I mean, what passes for a charm offensive from Tehran, I guess, is the best way to put it. Um, Right after uh, the comments that Obama made talking about uh, decrying the loose talk of war and stressing the, that diplomacy was his preferred option for dealing with the Iranian nuclear program, uh, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader, uh, reiterated a 1995 fatwa in which he said that building nuclear weapons would be a, quote, great sin, unquote. And he praised uh, Obama, which is not something the supreme leader of Iran often does, uh, for tamping down the threats of war. He said such remarks are good and indicate a step out of delusions. Um, he also, at the same time, claimed that the economic sanctions that have been imposed on Iran are having absolutely no effect. Well, as we all know, the sanctions are having a huge effect, and I think this is another reason why we might actually have a, a, a diplomatic option uh, in front of us. Um, for those of you who haven't been following it, these sanctions are unlike any that have been imposed on Iran since the 1979 revolution. Uh, they're the most draconian, I think, that have been imposed on, on any government. Uh, 
if, uh, if you look in terms of the UN sanctions combined with the American sanctions, European sanctions, Iranian banks are basically uh, excommunicated now from the international financial system. There are very few banks in Iran that can do any kind of transactions. Uh, Iran is resorting to barter increasingly. Um, I would refer you to the Atlantic Council website, acus.org, where we have a number of papers that um, our task force has done, and a couple that deal in particular with Iran's reliance on China and on barter transactions. Uh, hard currency can't change hands. Currency can't change hands. So essentially, Iran is sending oil to countries such as India and China, getting a credit, and receiving back goods and services from those countries. Um, Iranian oil production is going down, I think in part because Iran realizes it can't sell the oil that it wants and get the money that it wants. Uh, it's down to 3.3 million barrels a day. That's down from 3.8 million barrels a day just uh, a few months ago and 4.1 million barrels a day a year or so ago. Um, this is truly hurting the Iranian economy. The, the real, the currency, has dropped in value by about uh, half against the dollar. Inflation is up, unemployment is up, and there is a lot of discontent within the country. So what are the other signals we're seeing from Iran that it might actually want to deal with the United States and the rest of the P5 plus one? The kinds of things that we, we follow like hawks if you're interested in Iranian internal politics and foreign policy. Uh, on March the 5th, the Iran, Iranian Supreme Court ordered the retrial of a former US Marine an Iranian-American who had been sentenced to death for uh, supposedly spying for the CIA. Uh, on March 13th, the U.S. deported back to Iran an arms dealer, an Iranian arms dealer who had been caught in a sting operation in the Republic of Georgia a few years earlier. And in this country, uh, it was revealed that our Treasury Department has begun an investigation into the former governor of Pennsylvania, Ed Rendell, and several others, for taking money to promote uh, an organization called the Mujahideen Hulk. This is a, an Iranian opposition group that's on the State Department's terrorism list that has been trying uh, to get off the terrorism list for years and, and uh, has been paying very, very uh, well-known former US officials great sums of money to advocate getting off the terrorism list. They have not gotten off the list. There was supposed to be, I think, a March 26th deadline for that, the State Department to rule. That deadline is gone, um, and I would predict that there will be no decision on this issue, certainly before the nuclear talks. And this is another signal to Iran, because the Iranian government hates this organization. It's believed to be responsible for assassinating five Iranian scientists over the last few years uh, in cahoots with the Mossad. Um, so we have the new talks that are scheduled, uh, I believe April 13th, although there's still some, April 14th, some question about the exact date and the exact uh, venue. And I agree with Michael's analysis. I don't think we're going to see any dramatic breakthrough. But what we're looking for is to manage the situation. Nobody's going to solve the Iranian conundrum overnight. The idea is to cap the program in some way, induce some limits uh, introduce some greater transparency that will contain the Israelis. I think the problem is to contain Israel, not so much to contain Iran right now, that will provide confidence that Iran is not rushing toward uh, a nuclear weapon. Um, 
It will also help contain the US Congress, which uh, insists on passing more and more resolutions that would attempt to really tie the hands of the Obama administration in negotiating a solution. Uh, there is a, a resolution that would forbid containment uh, that was making its way through Congress until Rand Paul uh, stood up and said, no, this is a, a, a kind of backdoor authorization for war, and, and we can't have it. Uh, it was remarkable, actually, that we have to rely on Rand Paul to prevent Congress from passing ridiculous legislation, but there you have it. Um, there are a number of good proposals that are out there to provide this kind of management of the nuclear issue, and Michael has referred to some of them. Most of them center around Iran halting in, uh, enrichment to 20% U-235, which is perilously close to weapons grade. If Iran will stop or slow that, if Iran will stop enriching at a facility called Fordo, which is built into the side of a mountain near Qum and very, very difficult for anyone to, to attack, if it would slow that, uh, stop putting in more centrifuges there, that would be a, a major uh, step. Catherine Ashton, the EU foreign policy chief, has said that she wants a sustained process of constructive dialogue with Iran. This was in her letter back to uh, Jalili. The, the way it worked was that Ashton first sent a letter to the Iranians last October. It took Iran until February to respond, and then finally in March after uh, the meeting between uh, Obama and Netanyahu, Ashton uh, said yes, the P5 plus one would be willing to, to meet. So she wants a sustained process of constructive um, uh, dialogue, which means not a one-shot deal, not one two-day session in Istanbul and, uh, and nothing uh, after that. So we do need to see that there are more meetings scheduled and that they begin to get into the nitty-gritty of the nuclear program and that they're not just talking about um, uh, principles and uh, uh, that Iran is not simply presenting its litany of grievances against the West, which is what it's done in the past. A um, couple more things about Iranian internal politics that I think are useful. Uh, the Iranians had parliamentary elections March the 2nd. Uh, they were not what we would call free or fair, uh, but the Iranian government declared them a great success. Uh, it declared that 64% of the Iranians had participated, which um, is undoubtedly a, an inflated figure. Uh, uh, there's a joke going around that 80% uh, of Iranians sat home on television watching 70% uh, watching of Iranians vote on television. So there is something in there that's a little bit off. Um, but nevertheless, this victory allowed the uh, supreme leader, I think, to consolidate his base. He has won his fight with the president of Iran. In case you hadn't noticed, the president of Iran, Ahmadinejad, has been fighting with the supreme leader of Iran for the last year. And uh, he reached out, supreme leader reached out to another of his rivals, former president Hashmi Rafsanjani, and he appointed him to another five-year term as head of something called the Expediency Council which is a largely toothless group, but it is supposed to uh, mediate conflicts um, between various branches of the government. Rafsanjani, of course, is a famous pragmatist. He's somebody who's identified with outreach to the West. And so this is another signal, perhaps, that the supreme leader uh, can be a little bit uh, more flexible in these uh, negotiations. Um, the US goal is to prevent Iran from developing a nuclear weapon. I think this was also very useful during the Netanyahu-Obama talks that uh, instead of talking about a nuclear weapons capability, which is what the Senate resolution discusses and what the Israelis have been harping on uh, for years, 
the red line now is an actual nuclear weapon, and this is a lot easier in terms of preventing a conflict and also a lot easier in terms of uh, negotiations. It gives a lot of leeway for the Iranians to maintain an enrichment program, but not a nuclear weapons program. And that kind of definition, I think, is going to be key uh, if we're going to be able to achieve some sort of success. There's a very good um, report that's out uh, from the Congressional Research Service just yesterday that talks about the fact that Iran, uh, of course, we know that they've dispersed their nuclear facilities widely across the country, but also that their accounts that they have centrifuges and places to make centrifuges widely dispersed around the country, which means that there is no military solution to the Iranian nuclear program. You can bomb the known sites, you can kill a bunch more scientists, but you're not going to be able to destroy Iran's ability to reconstitute its nuclear program. And as many experts have suggested, bombing Iran would be the one thing that would convince Iran that it absolutely has to have uh, a nuclear weapons program in order to deter uh, future attacks. So I think we've seen some, some clarification and uh, very useful clarification in, in terms of the goals of U.S. foreign policy in recent weeks. Um, I personally think that, that if the United States and its allies fail in stopping Iran from developing a nuclear weapon, uh, containment is an excellent option. Uh, we've been containing the Iranians for 33 years, and I think we can continue uh, to do so. Um, Iran is more isolated now in the region. I don't know if we're going to get into a discussion of uh, its uh, problems with its neighbors. Certainly, it's very, very worried about the situation in Syria. It has lost its cachet, its uh, narrative as being the champion of the oppressed doesn't wash so well when it's oppressing its own people, putting down uh, demonstrations after its 2009 elections, and it's supporting the Assad regime in Syria. So I think we're in a relatively good place. The real question, frankly, is whether the US government is going to be able to come up with some creative ideas in what is for us uh, an election year, and whether o Obama will have the courage, as well as Ayatollah Khamenei will have the courage to compromise. And I'll leave it there. Good morning. Uh, thanks to Cato for inviting me to speak today. And I've been asked to uh, basically talk about why diplomacy may not work with Iran. What are the challenges? Uh, before I get into that, I just want to commend people and experts, commentators, analysts who emphasize diplomacy with Iran. Uh, because I don't think that a military uh, strike against Iran by the United States or Israel uh, would solve the Iranian nuclear crisis. And I do believe that it would be very counterproductive to US interests in the Middle East. And as Barbara mentioned, there are signs, positive indications, that Iran is open uh, to compromise or engagement with the P5 plus one in the United States. Uh, we just had parliamentary elections in Iran the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei has consolidated power. Uh, President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad is not as big of a player in Iranian politics. So we can argue that Iran's decision making on the nuclear program has been streamlined. Uh, in 2009 and after that, one of the difficulties in engaging Iran and reaching a negotiated settlement uh, was the fact that there are so many players involved, uh, players that were often domestically opposed to each other. For example, Ahmadinejad uh, came under attack from the left and the right of the Iranian political uh, system 
for trying to broker a deal um, on uranium enrichment. Uh, so we can argue that Khamenei is now more confident uh, going forward. And as Barbara mentioned, he did pra praise President Obama for discounting war and uh, emphasizing diplomacy. Uh, he has kept the less ideological uh, former president, uh, Hashemi Rafsanjani, as head of the Expediency Council. Uh, one of his advisors, uh, Mohammad Javad Larjani, has stated that Iran is open to compromise, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we can list a number of other uh, positive indications. And the hope here is that sanctions will put enough pressure on Khamenei that he will back down. He's, and we know he's a reasonable man. He's a rational man. He makes decisions on cost-benefit calculations. But we have to also look at uh, what is it in, in for Khamenei? What are his uh, personal political interests? What are his ideological interests as Iran's supreme leader? And uh, more importantly, what is his worldview? How does he see the world uh, the United States and the nuclear program. And when we look at Khamenei, he really believes that the Islamic Republic is engaged in an existential conflict with the United States. Uh, Khamenei believes that the United States has never accepted the Islamic Revolution of 1979 and will never accept the revolution. Uh, he doesn't believe that the United States is just opposed to Iran's specific policies on the nuclear program, for example, but he has stated that the United States opposes the very essence of the Islamic Republic. Uh, and I don't think this is going to change as long as Khamenei is alive. This is the way he thinks about the United States. Uh, he uh, participated in the revolution. He was one of the revolutionary leaders. Uh, he helped overthrow the Shah and what he believes to be US domination of Iran. And so his worldview is very much based on his uh, experience. The Islamic Republic and Khamenei may even believe that the nuclear program uh, is an important military deterrent against the United States. Even if Iran does not develop a nuclear weapon, uh, the fact that it has a virtual capability, that it has a capability to assemble a nuclear weapon, uh, if need be, I think serves as a valuable deterrent for Iran. And Iran has seen the United States overthrow neighboring regimes, like the regime of Saddam Hussein and the Taliban with relative ease. And so uh, the Iranian decision makers know that in the future, the United States may take military action against Iran uh, to overthrow the regime. Uh, circumstances for that uh, right now are not uh, very good. Um, this is not the US intention, but it's a possibility for the future. In addition, Khamenei really believes that the nuclear program is a sign of his regime's success. Uh, he sees the nuclear program as a success for the revolution, despite the years of sanctions and isolations Iran has faced. And the sanctions we talk about right now are nothing new in, in terms of um, them being strong. Uh, they're very draconian, as Barbara said. But Iran has been under sanctions for more than 30 years. And Khamenei believes that Iran's progress on the nuclear program shows that it's able to resist the United States. Uh, when you listen to Khamenei's speeches, this is a constant theme. He emphasizes Iran's scientific progress. Uh, his last Friday speech was all about uh, how Iran is ranked number 11th in terms of scientific progress. This is what he claims, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, uh, Khamenei's viewpoint of the nuclear program is not necessarily shared by all Iranians. 
within the political elite, figures like Raf Sanjani, but also uh, the leaders of the Green Movement, the reformists, may not see the nuclear program in similar ideological and political terms. Uh, in fact, uh, the isolation uh, Iran has faced, the sanctions, hurts the socioeconomic agenda of cons pragmatic conservatives and the reformists who want to uh, liberalize Iran's economy, uh, open it up to the world, and enact political reforms. But this is not Khamenei's mindset. He's very much, compared to these other figures, an isolationist and an ideological uh, leader. It's not clear how the Iranian public feels about the nuclear program. We hear that uh, there is a sense of national pride. A lot of Iranians support the civilian aspect of the nuclear program. There's been a lot of polling uh, done on the issue. Uh, we don't know for certain how Iranians feel. Uh, I would argue that, yes, uh, the regime has had some success in selling the nuclear program uh, as a matter of national right. That Iranians think, well, why should uh, Israel, Pakistan, India, et cetera, the West, have access to nu nuclear technology, and why should we not? And some Iranians probably would argue that Iran should have nuclear uh, weapons. Um, so the question remains, will Khamenei give in to pressure? Sanctions have uh, undoubtedly hurt Iran's economy. Uh, the Iranian currency has really devaluated. Prices have gone incredibly high. Uh, the average Iranian is uh, really suffering, the middle classes, uh, some of the same people that support democracy in Iran. And this is one of the uh, unfortunate aspects of sanctions, uh, that it does hurt certain US objectives while it helps to dissuade Iran from weaponizing. Uh, but there's no indication that Khamenei is rethinking, fundamentally rethinking Iran's position on the nuclear program. He has admitted that sanctions are painful, but there are signs that he's getting Iran and its population ready for the long struggle with the United States. We'll have to, when we look at Iran, we have to remember that Iran and the regime specifically has survived a lot. It has survived the revolution, the long war with Iraq, years of sanctions, insurgencies. Khamenei has survive assassination attempts. Um, he's not a man that could easily uh, bend. And he has named this year, uh, I don't remember the specific name, but the year of national labor and promoting Iranian domestic productivity. He really believes that in the face of sanctions that Iran can become uh, more self-sufficient. Um, and then he points out to the nuclear program and other scientific achievements uh, for this. In addition, Khamenei, unlike his predecessor, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, the founder of the revolution, is not as open to advice uh, from the political system. He's pushed aside people like Rafsanjani. Khamenei and Rafsanjani used to have dinner twice a week, and that's not happening anymore. Rafsanjani is not giving him advice. Uh, instead, Khamenei is... Um, relying on a very small inner circle of uh, Revolutionary Guards officers and security people uh, to give him advice. And in a lot of ways, he's cut off from the world. He believes uh, that the United States is in geopolitical decline, that the United States faces decline in the Middle East uh, because of what he terms the Islamic awakening, what we call the Arab Spring, uh, the Iranian regime calls Islamic awakening. Um, Khamenei believes that U.S. influence in the Middle East is on the wane because of the overthrow of pro-American regimes in Tunisia, Egypt, 
uh, Yemen. Um, there's instability also in countries like Bahrain, etc. So he believes that as Iran stands strong uh, in the face of sanctions, that the U.S. also faces these problems, and that time may be on his side. We could argue that uh, he is delusional. Um, he has said that, that Obama is exiting from delusions, but we can argue that he is delusional. Um, but that's what, you know, what we have in Iran. This is the viewpoint of a, make, of a man making decisions uh, for the entire Iranian population. So where does that leave the United States in terms of policy options? Uh, I believe the next panel will talk about these options, including the military option. Um, not a lot of people would argue that, uh, even within Israel, that there's a military solution. If, there's an attack against Iran. Iran can kick out the IAEA. Um, the regime can crack down on opposition. Uh, there will be a greater swell of national pride. I don't think Iranians uh, necessarily will forgive the regime for its sins uh, because of an attack. But it will put the regime, or it could very well put the regime in a favorable position, especially if the Israelis uh, do not manage to really damage Iran's nuclear program very much. Uh, the military strike also sets back the U.S. Object, objective of democracy in Iran uh, and could lead to greater instability in the region. Uh, diplomacy is a solution. And Barbara mentioned that uh, the goal is really to manage the situation, to prevent an armed conflict. Uh, but in terms of diplomacy, if we're going to rely on diplomacy, uh, this situation can go on and on and on and on uh, for the next several years. And ultimately, there has to be a solution, not just to the Iranian nuclear program, uh, but uh, a solution to the Islamic Republic and uh, our relations with the Islamic Republic. I would argue that as long as Ayatollah Khamenei is in power in Iran, we will not solve our problems with Iran. Um, that he's not amenable to a normal relationship with the United States, and he's going to do everything uh, in his power to undermine U.S. interests in the region. I think the good news is that uh, Iran has not decided to weaponize this program. Um, the U.S. intelligence community assesses that there is no indication that Khamenei and the leadership has uh, decided to weaponize the program. And given the vulnerabilities the regime faces at home, lack of legitimacy, uh, the woeful economic situation in Iran, Iran's receding uh, regional influence, including its troubles with allies like Syria, this gives us the opportunity to contain the Islamic Republic and hope for something better to emerge in the future. Because if you look at Iran, I think Iran, more so than a lot of countries surrounding it, has the real potential for a democratic system. And ultimately, only a democratic Iran will be the solution to the nuclear crisis. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you all for coming. Uh, thank you to my co-panelists here. I had thought when we were originally drawing up this, I thought that it was going to be a terrifically difficult uh, case to make that there uh, is some hope for diplomacy. And I think I agree with uh, uh, those on the other side of the table that there is increasing hope. But I'm going to try my best to, to, to pour cold water uh, on that increasing hope. Uh, despite the fact that I'm very, very uh, much a supporter of diplomacy, I think I would support uh, a much more ambitious di uh, diplomatic approach than is likely uh, to happen. Uh, but I'll explain some of the obstacles uh, in terms of American domestic politics and in terms of sort of structural 
uh, international reasons uh, in the international system. I should also reveal that I was doing work on Iranian uh, potential proliferation in 2006 and 2007, uh, but for the past year or so, I've been working on uh, the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, so I'm actually having to pivot back to the Middle East, uh, as, as I think the administration um, is having to uh, pivot back to the Middle East. So uh, I will defer on, on many recent developments uh, to my co-panelists. You have to say, though, the good thing about uh, US-Iran or Western Iranian diplomacy is that there are really good metaphors. There are zones of immunity, closing windows, clocks running at different speeds. It's like the Salvador Dali painting of nuclear proliferation. So again, I want to reiterate, I favor diplomacy, as I'll reveal at the end, I favor probably an unrealistically ambitious diplomatic approach, but it's the very fact that that approach is unrealistic uh, that causes me to doubt uh, whether or not we will get where we want to go. As I mentioned, uh, Ali covered quite well, I think, some of the Iranian obstacles to a diplomatic resolution of the problem. Uh, I want to focus on U.S. domestic politics uh, and on some structural impediments and then suggest where we might go from here to prove me wrong. Um, so in terms of American domestic politics, um, the, the general aphorism that I've been trying to, uh, to get out into the public zeitgeist is that what might, hap what might work can't happen, and what might happen can't work. Um, and I think that that's a, a fairly glum assessment, and I hope that I'm wrong about it, uh, but that's what I believe at this point. Uh, as Barbara mentioned, uh, you know, the Congress's attitude has been, let's add more pressure on top of the existing pressure and promise not to put any more pressure uh, if concessions are made. And in fact, it's even stopped that last part of not putting any more pressure. Um, the, the central bank sanctions, for example, the, the Congress did not write an off-ramp in for Iran to say, and oh, by the way, if you fulfill these 57 demands that we're making, um, we'll remove these sanctions. There's no, so if you're Iranian and you're looking at what Congress is doing and saying, all right, well, what are the demands here uh, that we could fulfill uh, uh, conceivably that would give us a way out of this, the Congress has stopped, by and large, even gesturing at the idea of an off-ramp. So I think that's something of an indication um, of the role that Congress intends uh, to play. I'm pretty much a partisan of Congress as an institution, uh, but they have really not covered themselves in glory, I think, uh, with their participation in US diplomacy toward Iran. My read of what the Congress is up to is that they want to appear very, very concerned uh, to various interested constituencies about the problem, and that's about it. I mean, the one saving grace that we may have is that as an institution, they are cowardly enough to ignore the power granted to them in Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution, which indeed grants them the power to declare war. We used to do that as a country, declare war uh, when the Congress decided that war was appropriate. But instead, now we've reverted to lots of hand-waving and table-pounding, uh, which perversely, I think, is probably a good thing. Um, they, so the Congress, I think, again, often does uh, some, some boneheaded things to get its oar in the lake of US-Iran diplomacy, uh, but they have not really provided uh, uh, hope uh, or anything constructive, I think, to the diplomatic uh, uh, agenda that the administration is following. As for the Obama administration itself, you've got to give it credit. It, it, it put its neck out there by uh, on the campaign saying that it was open to diplomacy uh, by in 2009, uh, gesturing in the direction of diplomacy. But I perceive not too terribly much interest in spending gobs and gobs of political capital on getting diplomacy with Iran up and running in a way that will be fruitful. 
I can't entirely blame them for that. It, it's not clear to me that they have enough political capital left, particularly this year, uh, to get things rolling in a fruitful direction. And obviously, uh, we've all noticed with the goings on at the Supreme Court, they have lots of domestic priorities on which they're spending political capital. Uh, so I don't envy uh, the position in which the Obama administration finds itself. And I think to echo what some of the other panelists have said, any diplomatic process that has the hope of producing long-term results would be itself a long-term protracted process of meetings after meetings after meetings that would be easy to sort of demagogue as the Obama administration selling out to the Islamic Republic. I mean, the campaign commercials rather write themselves. So I think that's a politically perilous thing for the administration to do. And for a variety of reasons, I, I, I will defer to Michael Adler gladly on this and, and, and hope that he's right. I'm not sure that the Israelis uh, were as well uh, 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 received uh, to President Obama's message. I, 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 again, I remain open to being persuaded that that's right, um, but I, I wonder whether it is. So moving on to sort of the structural uh, international obstacles, I'm really indebted uh, to reminding me of the insight to uh, one of the panelists on the second panel, Nuno Montero, who uh, has a forthcoming paper where he mentions this, uh, topic. But to start with, the, 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 the dyad, as the political science kids call it, uh, the, the, the relationship between Iran on the one hand and the United States on the other hand is terrifically imbalanced in terms of material power. Uh, the, Iran cannot conquer the United States. The United States, if it decided to, could conquer Iran. It would be a big mess. I don't support doing so. But in terms of material power, there's simply no comparing the two countries. So given that, if you look at things from Iran's perspective, any diplomatic deal would involve making lots of substantial security assurances to Iran. If you do this, not only will we not uh, not only will we do something on the one hand, but we also agree not to do something in the future. So the question becomes how could Iran trust assurances provided by a country that has overwhelming power and indeed I believe is still a unipolar power in the international system? How do you make credible assurances to a relatively weak state? as a unipolar power that if it decided to, could renege on those assurances at any point. This is a point that I think is not terribly well grasped, or at least I don't see evidence that it is very well grasped uh, by the administration or certainly by the Congress. It's just very difficult, no matter how genuine the intention, to credibly convey that to a country with which, coming from both sides, there have been poisonous relations for the past 30 odd years. This is, I think, a very important point to highlight. And President Obama, in a recent interview uh, with Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic, pointed to cases where he thought uh, diplomacy had produced good results in terms of nuclear nonproliferation. And he pointed, of course, at South Africa, and then pointed at Libya. Well, if you're Ayatollah Khamenei and you look at the Libya deal and say, well, we could get ourselves a Libya deal here. What about that? It doesn't look like a very good deal. Uh, because again, the United States could very easily renege on assurances that were made if, for example, there were another political crackdown, Iran has credibly denuclearized, and the United States decides that it's had just about enough 
uh, of a dictatorial regime in Tehran cracking down uh, on protesting civilians. So I think getting our heads around how to convey credibly security assurances is maybe my sort of Sunday punch here in terms of pouring cold water on the prospect for a long-term diplomatic deal um, that works. So you know, I want to reiterate, just in case uh, uh, someone uh, perished the thought, would quote me out of context, I favor diplomacy. Uh, I favor a very robust uh, diplomatic approach to Iran. But I worry, again, that what uh, might happen can't work and what might work can't happen. So in terms of where from here, uh, in wrapping up, I'll offer a couple of thoughts about how to prove me wrong. Um, we have this peculiar belief in the United States that when we win uh, uh, concessions at the UN Security Council to do another uh, 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 resolution sanctioning Iran or what have you, uh, that there's a sort of or else on the other side of that in terms of the people that have signed on to the deal, right? So it, it, we, we censure Iran for doing this and it should stop. And in our mind, we have an or else at the end of that statement, or else we will force you to stop. And I think that the rest of the world really doesn't have an or else on the end of the, the Security Council resolutions or any other statements. So I think we should sort of get our mind around that. If, if we decide that there's going to be an or else, it's going to be us and possibly a very, very small uh, coalition of the willing, to coin a phrase, uh, that tries to put teeth uh, into these uh, uh, sanctions uh, militarily, should it come to that. I think it's particularly odd that lots of conservatives uh, who have particular views about the United Nations tend to endorse the idea uh, that the Security Council sanctions should bite in important ways. I think we would probably have to make large, probably prohibitive, prohibitively large concessions at the outset uh, to get Iranians to believe that we're serious about diplomacy. Um, if you look at 1737, 1747, I think it's probably unlikely that Iran is going to agree to suspend outright uh, as those uh, uh, indicate. And I think we would probably have to do something uh, in terms of the unilateral sanctions from Washington or from Europe in order to convince the Iranians that we were serious. I also think that's probably a political non-starter. If you could get them to do something like stop enriching to 20%, I would be willing to walk back some of the things that we're doing, not just to promise not to do anything in addition, but indeed to walk back some of the things that we're already doing to try to credibly convince them that we were serious. Um, it would be a political nightmare. Uh, or just one other thing that we could do is if they, you know, particularly if they agreed to, to stop uh, uh, enhancing the Qom facility, the Fordo facility, um, that would be terrific. And I would take that uh, uh, as a sign that we, would, we should be willing uh, to walk back some of the things that we're already doing. This is not a mainstream point of view. Uh, I've not heard it from the administration or from the Congress, and I think it would be a political nightmare. Uh, but there again, I think you see the domestic political uh, uh, influences constraining our ability to operate internationally. But the net takeaway, I think, is that if you really want diplomacy to work, and if you really think that uh, a military uh, option is a terrible idea, you're going to have to really bite the bullet, so to speak, and do some things that you really would rather not do in order to get the train rolling in the first place. And in the second place, realize that this is going to be a long, uh, agonizing process that's going to have lots of setbacks and may not, in the end, work. I hope that we get that far, um, but I fear that we will not. So I think I'll just leave it there and then turn the podium back over to Chris to field questions. Thank you very much.